Hello, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. And today, this is episode eight of our series. Today, we're going to go back to what we started in episode seven, a discussion about the power of the vote. What could be more political than voting? Now, just for a recap, for those of you who didn't look at seven, which means you really need to go back and do that. We talked about two questions that I asked people when I went to Selma. Number one, why did you come to Selma in March, celebrating the 57th anniversary of Bloody Sunday? And number two, is it still important to vote? And of course, we got various answers most of them positive in that particular segment. I'm not going to try to re-preach the sermon. So now we're into episode eight, and I promised that we would talk to people who were not necessarily as enthusiastic as those in episode seven. So here we are today with a friend that I met for the first time in Selma, and his name is Mundell Robinson, I'm going to let you let him tell you a little bit about himself and the organization he represents. So I'm also joined by my perennial co-host, Miss Francesca Larson, who is also our producer with Mosaic Strategies. And so, Mundell, I'm going to turn to you. Tell us about your organization and tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't even know if the two are different. Peace and thank you for having me. Um, Black Male Voter Project, 501c4 arm of our organization, and Black Male Voter Project, uh, the 501c3 Education Fund, are two organizations that I felt necessary after 20 years of existing in white political space, meaning mainstream politics. Listening to white people and Black people who think like white people tell me a bunch of hoopla about what they need to do, what we need to continue to do to turn out Black men as if they had ever been successful at doing that. And what I mean by that is if you look at the history of black men voting records, nearly half of us never participate in elections. And that number is only dealing with those that are registered to vote, not considering those who are not registered to vote. So if you consider that fact, 50 percent of anything is not a passing grade. It's a failed effort. And the fact that they spend billions of dollars on the Democratic side to turn out so-called their base voters and nobody is a bigger base than black voters. I would say that they're failing epically. And I saw this. And I was screaming at white consultants about what they need to do in their house and nothing and nobody was listening. So I decided to start Black Male Voter Project as a love note to black men and my idea of saying, I see you and this political system will hear from us. Me, I'm a country boy from North Carolina, small town called Enfield in the northeastern part of the state, close to the coast, close to Virginia and far away from everything. And what I mean by that is the population is about 3000. There are no new people moving in or out of Enfield. But for some white folk moving down from New Jersey, trying to gentrify my hometown and make it their retirement community. We are an extremely simple town. We always have been. We have five roads running north and south and about three more running east to west. And uh, four or five families that know each other, that love each other. And while Forbes just put us on the seventh, made us the seventh poorest city in the country, there are zero homeless people in my hometown. So if you juxtapose that with D.C., where all the money is, and there's 16 years waiting list for the homeless people to get housing here. 
I say we're doing better being poor than they are as rich. So a little bit about me, a little bit about my organization. I'm ready to get into this conversation about voting. Well, that's exactly what you did down in Selma. And I want to set the context for our listeners where I met you and what you're going to be talking about in a few minutes. I interviewed you and about 30, 35 other people while I was down there. There was a workshop about voter rights and the new restrictions proposed and actually in effect right now that impact black voter rights given by my friend Barbara Onwine of the Transformative Justice Coalition out of Washington, D.C., very heavy sister and one who works hard to get the right to vote. And you had been waiting for some time to make your point. Finally, when I caught up with you, this is what you had to say. So I'm going to let you listen to this, and then I want you to respond to your response. Here we go. I was simply frustrated with this idea that we can tell people that in the, in the middle of an election season that, it, that this is an important election and you need to get involved. You can't tell people who don't have their basic needs met that they need to get involved in a political system that they don't see addressing those babies, the absence of those basic needs. So my frustration is don't come to black people right now telling us how important this election is to you when we've not seen you help us through our struggles. I'm not saying there's not been any gains in the black community, but it means something that black men in America die younger than anywhere else in this world. It means something that black men are over-policed. It means something in the most progressive state, California, black men are still 25% of the prison population when they're less than 5% of the whole population. So when I tell people, you you can't come talk to people who are struggling with, with not having enough food, not having enough housing, that they need to go vote for your candidate they've never seen before who don't look like them uh, in the way that they struggle. Now, before you say anything, I saw a young lady who had been on Barbara's panel, and she was uh, at Howard University, so being the roving reporter that I was, I asked her, can I ask you to join this conversation? Of course. Tell us your name, please. Um, my name is Anaya Vines. And you go to Howard University. Yes, I'm a senior. Um, I'm the founder of the Live Movement, a national HBCU abolitionist coalition. Okay. What did you think of what Mondale just said? I believe it was true. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that there's been a continuous compromise that Black people have had in America in regards to celebritizing crumbs. There's a lot of dependency that we still have. There's an expectation that we still hold for elected officials when we're really not getting to the meat of the issue, which is, you know, lessening the dependency on the government and more dependency on our people within the community. So I definitely think that when it comes to a lot of the fights that we're quote unquote fighting right now, I think a lot of the energy needs to be allocated in different ways, re-strategizing and really understanding what the enemy is that we're facing. So I could have just had you, I could have just played your recorded voice, but I said, well, I really want to get this brother's live opinion about what his organization does and about what he said at that time. So tell us, Mondale, what is your comment now on your particular feeling about voting and uh, Anaya was apparently in agreement with. Yeah, I, I appreciate you refreshing my memory on our conversation. 
I actually started to get frustrated again, thinking about the conversation in the gym and the fact that I was sitting there waiting to speak. And I actually got told, hold on a couple of times and then got shut down when I began to talk about issues. I find it extremely saddening when I hear black people, because the panel was basically black people, was one, one, one white woman up there, if I remember correctly, speaking about this idea of voting in this way where you got to go vote, somebody dies so you can go vote. That way of talking, it's not a motivating factor for the voters that we need to participate in electoral politics. It's also disingenuous and ahistorical. If you believe that you can only say to people that make up the largest part of your base to go vote two months before an election and you've not done any work, it's voting is an intimate thing and you should have some relationship, some type of relationship before you start talking to people about their vote and who they're going to vote for. So, yeah, I, I still feel frustrated about this idea that the Democratic Party, it auxiliaries and then organizations like this think that they think the way the work of turning out black voters is talking at black voters and not listening to them, not putting in time to build a relationship with them. And I feel like there's nothing transformative or justice seeking about an organization that show up like this. I'm not trying to disrespect your friend, but I feel like so much, so often the Democratic Party prefer organizations like this where the board is all lawyers all these prestigious black folk from these prestigious white schools. And please know that I'm using prestigious as a pejorative term, because what happens is these people do not know how to turn out my brothers and sisters who are not normal political actors. If you look at the normal black man population in this country, nearly half of us that are registered to vote have not voted in five consecutive elections. I said that earlier and I'm saying it again because that is a damning critique, not a critique of black men's, but it's a critique of how we play politics in this country, because we know people will vote when resources are spent on them. And because nobody is spending adequate resources on cultural competent programs that listen to and then invoke the spirit of what black men are telling them is most important to them. Black men sit out elections and they have every right to. And it's not because of voter suppression laws or tactics passed by Republicans, because, hell, ever since we've been able to vote, supposedly 152 years ago with the 15th Amendment, black men have been the guinea pig or the targets of voter suppression. And it never stopped us. Even when they were trying to kill us, we still try to go to the polls and vote. The reason we don't go vote now is because we don't see any value in it. The way it's presented, it seems transactional. People come see you two months before an election with a proverbial fried chicken or church fan telling you this is the most important election, this white candidate or this black candidate who talks like a white candidate is the most important candidate. And by talk, I'm not talking about their vernacular. I'm talking about the way that they talk about or see the world. It's ridiculous. I think what happens is there's an eroding of democracy that's bigger than uh, misinformation. Okay, well, let me stop you right there because some of what you're saying, I want to attach to Barbara's response because I went to her and I asked her, were there any points of agreement with what you had to say? And this was her response. I mean, well, you know, there's, uh, I mean, he has a good point that there are whole communities of voters that people discount and don't focus on. And the primary, the gold voter, the gold standard voter is what's called the frequent voter. And that's who everybody puts all their efforts on, all their money into, all their energies into. And those are the people who they know are going to vote regardless. They're going to show up. They're going to vote. That's their voting history. They got all these great voting records. But the people who they put no energy into, very little, is the people who are uh, infrequent voters who rarely show up at the polls. But that's where TJC, the Transformative Justice Coalition, lives. 
We work, our niche is the low turnout community. Our niche is the voters who have not been appealed to because the whole profile of who you reach out to is both based on frequent voters. And, and on that, using that's, that's our position. Are you finding that you're reaching young voters in particular? Oh, absolutely. But, but see, you know, but remember, everybody wants the new voters. Those are called new voters. So they are the, you know, if you went on the hierarchy of who do people reach out to, frequent voters, new voters. Mm -hmm. And, but the problem is, is that with the new voters, if you register somebody new for the first time, only 30% of them will turn out. So if you're going to change that, then you got to have a whole lot of voter contact. If you do a lot of good voter contact, you can get that up to 80%, but you got to do that work. That's where the churches come in. That's where it's so much, uh, that's where the groups come in. That's where mm-hmm. all the messaging and all the contacting, the postcards, the calls, all of that is part of that problem. Because otherwise, you know, the focus on new voters is a waste of time if you're not really trying to get those numbers up for your turnout. Uh, you might as well help, you know, work on the low print propensity voters, as they call them. So, Mondale, does that, set of details that she gave you, how they work, what they do, Transform the Justice Coalition. Does that help change your mind about my friend, Barbara? No. I mean, she could be my friend too if I knew more about her, but she's not my friend. And I hope you're not offended that I don't. What My problem is the sister has this idea. These are democratic talking points. This is why I was talking about these auxiliaries and these organizations that exist, these large organizations that demand so much space, command so much space, and take up so many resources, but they're doing work that's not true. First of all, there are no gold standard voters. There's a chicken over egg argument that she was having that makes no sense. Calling voters infrequent voters or super voters, super voters are people who vote all the time, infrequent voters are voters who vote sometime, or calling people low propensity is racist in its sense, because we know every election cycle tells you that the way you turn out voters is if you spend resources on them. A great example of this is the Democratic Party has made Iowa its first primary for the past 40 years. The Iowa does not look like the Democratic base. It's a white base. White people have not majority voted for Democrats in national elections in almost 50, 60 years. Yet and still, they still go to Iowa every year instead of going to Mississippi, which is the blackest state in the entire union. If the Democratic Party would have spent all of those resources, those billions of dollars in Mississippi, Mississippi voting apparatus would be as strong as Iowa would, and then Mississippi wouldn't have low or infrequent voters. They would have what she called gold standard voters. So to put that effect as if it's a thing of the voters or a problem of the voters is problematic. Secondly, she talked about the second level of voters or the second most important people that folk talk to are new voters. But the tactics she named are from the 60s. You can't call young voters. If you call young voters and they don't have you say they're not going to answer your phone. There are studies that show that if you call voters that are under a certain age, you're likely to turn them off than to turn them on to your idea and issues. She's talking about postcard and you're not going to send a postcard to a young voter and think they're going to read it. She talks about churches. Young people aren't going to churches. These are old tactics trying to get new voters. This is what I'm talking about. These stale tactics don't work. And it's this problem when we're talking about voting in this casual way to say things to make the donors, the donor class, extremely excited. When I say donor class, I'm talking about white money interest because that's who fund this work for black and brown and white organizations. So I think the problem is we need to be truthful. Blame the folk that the fact that the Democratic Party's base 
is black voters. 65% of the people who participate in Democratic primaries are black voters, yet and still 90% of the money they spend is with white consultants. That makes no sense to me. Well, can you comment on some of this, Francesca? I know you've got something to say. Don't like you to be this quiet this long. I. <laughs> this is the the day where I'm going to edit stuff out that I no, say. No, 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 no. Stays um, that stays in. God. So I agree with you, Mondale. At this point, I'm getting hired as a consultant for exactly that stat that Mondale just referenced. But it doesn't mean the way that money is getting spent has changed. And what we just heard from Barbara is a lot about an, a mathematical equation and nothing about people. And so I'm going to throw it back to Mondale because there's something that I read on your site that stuck out to me as a political consultant that I'm not sure most folks know. And you've used a couple of words. You've talked about the base. We've talked about turnout. But something that you wrote on your site was, we did not begin after Labor Day, but at the beginning of the year and continued throughout. And as a result, we saw increased participation across the board. So taking it back to you, what normally happens after Labor Day? What have you seen in your experience versus what's different about the way that you operated? Yeah. So in, in traditional campaigning, and not just for candidates, the party in the party too, what happens is up until Labor Day, people are basically running ads on radio or maybe on social media or TV and raising a bunch of money. After Labor Day, people begin to knock on people's doors and try to have three or four passes of their universe. A universe of voters are the voters you think you could turn out to win the election. And they don't start having real conversations with them at their doors until after Labor Day. That's basically where people say campaign season starts. And I think the tragedy with that is you're taking a people who needs to know everything about this election and your candidate and trying to condense that into three conversations. We know that knocking on people's doors is the most expensive method to reaching voters, but it's also the most effective way to turn out or change voters' minds. Ads does less than a half a percent of increase in voter turnout. Text messages and phone does about one, but knocking on someone's door can get anywhere from three to five percent, depending on what method you're using of social pressure. I think, though, the tragedy of it is what happens is the conversation does not become about that voter in the at the Labor Day moment. It becomes about this rush to the campaign and the candidate feel to make you know everything about this candidate or while they're the best fit to be your representative. It's tacky. Because first of all, you don't even know what the voters' issues are. You're based off some stale poll that some consultant who don't even speak their language is using. And what I mean by don't speak their language is a great example of this is we do focus groups. They're called Brothers Be Voting. We chose that vernacular intentionally. Uh, We were doing one of those conversations in southern Georgia right after Amar Aubrey was murdered in that home in Brunswick, in his hometown. And what we had, we had 70 brothers in there. And we always populate the room with people who don't normally vote. So drug dealers, gang members, and people who don't normally hate politics, just people living regular life. And we have three or four political people in the room. I asked what was the most important issue at that moment for these brothers. And one of the young brothers said to me, we need more public safety. Now, I'm a national political figure. So to hear that these black men in this room are talking about they want more public safety blew my mind because that's a conservative talking point about the need to fund police uh, in a fuller way, give them more money, have more police. 
So when I define when I define public safety in the political space, they all the whole room looked at me like I had three heads because their definition of public safety was they wanted to be policed like white communities. That's closer to defunding the police, because if you're going to police black men like you can police white communities, that means you need less police officers leasing your community a lot less. That's a defunding. So that's but if you were calling on a poll from D.C. ask what's the number one issue, you don't ask follow ups. You just say they said public safety. They said public safety. So now you hear black men in Georgia are conservative when in actuality they're talking about the same thing to black people in California doing with a different language. So I think that's part of it. What we do, we do a lot of listening. Those brother be voting conversations are how we begin our interaction with black men. And what I mean by base, it means these are the people who will always vote for your party. So the Democratic Party's base is black people. I don't care if people argue that or not. There is no Democratic victories nationwide without the black vote. The Hispanic vote is split about 50-50 for Democrats and Republicans. The white vote, same way, but the black vote is 97% black women and 92 or 3% black men for Democratic candidates. So the base of the Democratic Party is the black vote. For us, we don't look at people in terms of election cycles. We look at how are we going to elevate, I mean, elevate black men's understanding of their duty to be civically engaged for the betterment of our communities and also to make longer our lives, to make better our lives, to make more of our employment situations in this country. And we do that by listening first and then being serious about addressing those issues. This is why our C3 side also provides services to brothers with felony convictions. We do a coding school to teach brothers how to code so they can get guaranteed employment through some of our partners. Uh, we also have this program called Street Legacy, where we are paying brothers who are coming home from prison to get trained in palliative care and then go sit with black men who are in hospice with no family and friends and sit with them until they pass. Because we can't show up just like the Democratic Party, its auxiliaries and other organizations that think they can just tell you, go vote. And they're not addressing these issues that are really keeping you from voting i.e. money issues, i.e. instability in housing, i.e. instability in relationships and also health care. So we try to address those issues before we ask somebody for their most precious vote. Well, I'm glad you said all that because I was going to ask you, since the name of your organization is Black Male Voters Project, evidently you do believe in some circumstances that voting is important. So on the other hand, we do see that there is a low turnout in the black community, low turnout in the Latino community sometimes. And I asked uh, Ben Chavis, my guy, who is a former executive director of the NAACP, National NAACP, now working with 230 African-American newspapers nationwide, coordinating their activities. And I want to pick up that conversation on the whole question of voter turnout. This is what he had to say. I have to say, Julius, the greatest and the most dangerous form of voter suppression is self-repression. When we don't vote, Mm -hmm. when we think that our vote doesn't matter, we think that our vote doesn't count. At a time when our vote is most critical, 2022 is going to set the stage for 2024. And we're not counseled. Some of the nightmares of the past are going to revisit us because we're being a little too accommodating to the status quo. I think we always got to keep pushing forward. You know, if you win something, you better hold on to that win. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in 65. We got the Voting Rights Act. But look what has happened. 
even up to the Supreme Court, they've been chipping away at it, chipping away at it, chipping away at it. Rather than making the voting rights stronger, it has become weaker. And that's why Selma is so important. So I was talking to a young man yesterday, and he said young people are not going to vote because they don't see any results. Okay. See, that's part of the menu of a misnarrative that's been fed to young people. Nobody wakes up in the morning or go to sleep at night saying that my vote doesn't count. That's part of the socialization process. And a lot of the stuff that's going on, particularly in social media, is to misinform, miseducate, and to negative re-socialize or create a narrative that really is not our narrative. I think from a spirit of self-determination, we have to always plead our own cause. That's why I'm working now with the black newspapers. That's mm-hmm. what I'm doing full-time. We have 230 African-American-owned newspapers. And we don't engage in all the negative journalism. We don't mm-hmm. engage. Well, we, we try to encourage striving for excellence in every category. And as you know, man, as, as attorney yourself, we need more freedom-fighting lawyers. We need more freedom-fighting doctors. We need more freedom-fighting engineers. We need more freedom-fighting school teachers. Mm-hmm. We need more freedom-fighting cops, black cops, mm-hmm. who won't stand by and witness and tolerate the injustices that are going down in our community. So I'm all in favor of upper mobility, but the gentrification is going on in a lot of our cities, in mm-hmm. Jersey, in mm-hmm. D.C., mm-hmm. and even in down south, even in Atlanta. We have to be careful. We are being displaced, and some of the displacement takes place because we don't take seriously the reason why we're here in Selma, and that is the right to vote. But the right to vote just can't be a symbolic every blessed Sunday when March comes around. Right to vote has to be something we take seriously every day, 365 days a year. Well, I appreciate that, good brother. Hey, man, it's always good to see you. Always good to see you. All right. So, Mondale, that last sentence he made, the right to vote just can't be symbolic. And we have some tools that we can use, including the vote, to make things happen. What do you think about what Ben Chavis just told us? I love my brother Ben Chavis. He's, we, I mean, he's from the same space I'm from, the same small spot in North Carolina. So I don't usually disagree with him, but I'm going I'm to gently disagree with him on this one. The fact that black people, I don't think we have, people misunderstand. There's a big myth about black voters and our turnout our method. I, black people don't have low turnout, voter turnout, as it pertains to America. If you look at the past elections, the black vote like the white vote and the Hispanic and Asian vote has basically been stable. It's been about the same percentage. I think that percentage is low overall, but I think it's low for everybody overall. And actually, with the exception of two or three elections, I think 92, 96 and 2000, it dipped a little bit. But for that, more than that, it was always about the same turnout. And actually, in the past few election cycles, we watched some major cities where black voters outperform white voters and black women are outperforming everybody, basically. So I think this idea that black people have this pathology of not participating is a myth that's grounded in nothing other than how we see the black voter and how we expect so much from us. We have every right not to turn out for candidates who don't show up for our issues. I think people forget that the protest vote is a vote. We saw that in Virginia where people did not, the Democrats did not show up with the message other than trying to compete with the Republicans and say, we're not going to teach critical race theory in school. That was a Republican talking point that they were combating. They weren't talking to black voters in that space. 
You were trying to get conservative leaning white voters to come see it your way when black voters had already delivered you all the offices in Virginia in the previous election cycle. So in 2021, we watched all of the successes of black higher voter turnout in 2017 get eroded because they were ignoring black voters. Black men in the southern part of Virginia heard nothing from the governor's campaign at all. McCullough didn't say anything until the week before election. And he sent a flyer with some about school, about critical race theory with white kids on the flyer to black to every black household in the south of Virginia. That makes no sense. After you've ignored this voter, that is depressing the vote. That is not self-depression. Voter turnout is not a self thing. If you give voters reasons to turn out, they will vote. We watched young voters outperform old voters in 2018. That's a midterm election. 2018 almost had more performance than some presidential elections. That's unheard of. You definitely don't hear millennials and the generation behind them outperforming older voters. But that's what happened in 2018. We also saw millennials, young voters, young black voters, brown voters outperform older voters in 2020 as well. We watched this become a method. So I think this idea that people can't tell you that they're not going to vote for you because you're not speaking to them and speaking to their issues is something that a generation, this new generation, the millennials and the ones behind them, which make up the largest voting block and also the darkest the electorate had ever been because they're 42 percent something other than white, will tell you that we don't have party loyalty and we don't we're not obligated to go vote for these milk toast candidates not speaking to our issues and refusing to give us what we need. What happened in 2021 is a direct result of Joe Biden saying he swear on his family name that he will not put black issues in the back burner if he was elected and if we gave them senators from Georgia. Well, we did both of those things, sent him to the White House, gave them a majority in the Senate and the House, and they did nothing as it pertains to the black issues and the black agenda. And so black voters sat out in Virginia. I think that's a smart choice. It puts people on account that you will not play with this vote. It is too important. And if you want it, you will listen to us. You can't make us argue. You can't run around. If you look at what happened in the past presidential election, 2020, at the beginning of that cycle, in the primary, everybody was talking about reparation as if it was a topic of the jour. Everybody was talking about reparation. Once we got a nominee, we didn't hear anything else about reparation. Once he got in the White House, we didn't even hear nothing about criminal justice reform, let alone reparations. So Black people are paying attention in a way, I think, that uh, the Internet is not responsible for misinformation. There's misinformation on the Internet, but Black people aren't stupid. We know what's what and what ain't what. Russia can't trick black people into believing that Donald Trump is for us. It didn't work. It don't work. That's not how you reach us. The only people that believe that are people that are disconnected from my people. Disconnected from my people. Not the ones that wear suits and ties and carry the party line. I'm talking about those who are living day-to-day lives, who talk politics in a way that is not clean, that can't pass a presidential vet, but it's still politics. So we have the Democrats the Democratic Party, and we have the Republican Party. Nobody at the national level except Ross Perot in recent memory has been able to crack that dual system with another party. What are you doing in 2022 when you still got to vote Democrat, you still got to vote Republican? What are you telling your constituency to do? Not vote? No, I don't. I don't. I definitely I would never tell anyone not to vote. If people don't vote, I, I respect that space and have that conversation with folk about the importance of our vote. However, I also understand people. People aren't just saying when, when you ask most black men uh, that are not in the political space that are not 
college educated or socialized to believe a certain way, uh, why they say their vote don't matter, it's tied to the idea that their life has not changed. Their economic situation hasn't changed. They hear the president on TV bragging about how great the economy is, but black men are still suffering double digit unemployment rates. They understand the microaggression they're suffering in the workspace. So I think we have to really get to those issues and address those issues for black people, for black men specifically. I tell people all the time in 2022, the Democratic Party is ours. I just said we are the base. We are the largest voting bloc. We should not be looking for a third party. We should be pushing out the people who don't see the party benefiting black people the way that we need it to benefit us. We need to be pushing those people out, the establishment. Uh, folk that think you can put reparations on the back burner after the primary is over need to be gone from our Democratic Party because we make that party powerful. They can't win elections without us. We don't flock. We don't switch. We don't flip, flip flop back and forth like the white women voter or like the Latino voter. Black voters are steadfast Democratic voters, which means that's our party. We should have all powers of that party. And if we don't have even black people that don't think like us aren't at the top of that party, we need to get rid of them too. Hakeem Jeffers, Clyburn, I could keep naming them, folk that that look like us in skin, but are willing to give up our whole house for nothing. Okay, well, let me take you in a little different direction. And I, I hope we can make this uh, recording work because there were a lot of people out there waiting to go across the bridge that day when I came across a young woman. Well, she's not that young, but uh, a woman who has made her mark in civil rights history. Her name is Betty Fikes, who was one of the original freedom singers, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And she's still singing, beautiful contralto voice. And this is what she said. I, if, if I can make it work, we're going to put the actual conversation in there. But just so I have it on record and you hear what I'm going to say or what she said, I'm just going to read that part to it to you, okay? All right. I asked her, how do you feel about voting now? She said, I'm not feeling very well about the situation. Think how many people died just for the right to vote. And even though Johnson passed the Voting Rights Act, and we can't put it all on white people. I travel all over the country, and we've certainly come a long way. We've done a lot, but the most important things have not been accomplished. So that's why I still come to Selma. Each time they come to Selma, it's the most historic place in the country. But look at it. And it wasn't only white people that brought us down. Mm. A lot of black people rebuilt everything we tore down in civil and segregation. They built the walls back up. But it got so caught up in the modern living that they are not paying attention to what's going on around them. And our folks, the mayor, the politicians, the governor, just look around today. Look what's happening to the voter rights bill. What are they trying to say to us? Same thing. They've been saying it all along. When are we going to listen? Now, she said that just at the time, this was ironic waiting to go across the bridge, but we were really waiting to hear from the vice president. And at that particular moment, they were introducing Vice President Kamala Harris to come on. So tell me, what do you think about what she said? I respect her work. I think she may be a little confused about 
her, her answer was confusing to me. She said, not just white people, the governor and the powers that be in Alabama are definitely not us. So I don't subscribe to the idea that all white people are against uh, the idea of black equity. And I don't subscribe to the idea that all black people are for black equity. What I will say is saying that looking at Selma is part black problem is ahistorical and it's also unbelievable. People in Selma are suffering because of the lack of economic advantages and a racist police, uh, uh, police system there that will jail people for six years without a court date. This is not hyperbole. This is actually happening. When we were there, we paid the free some brothers who had been sitting in jail without a trial because they couldn't come up $300. Not guilty of anything, sitting in jail because they couldn't make $300 bail. So to talk about the, the woes of Selma and to look around Selma right now and not consider the racist system that are still in play is ahistorical and also it's it's fanciful. I would also say that the problem with voting, I think people talk about voting, especially when they were involved in the 60s in an extremely emotional way. Sometimes it prevents them from seeing what is reality. Again, I'll go back to the psychology of what it takes to move people who are living on the margins to the polls. If people don't have their basic needs met, they can't think about things that are self-actualization. And we present the vote to them like it's self-actualization because of our transaction in nature. Let me say that in another way. If someone does not have a house, if someone is homeless, that person is never going to consider what they should have in their savings account. It is illogical to ask that person how much they're saving when they're living on the streets. Their money for them is about the immediate, immediate addressing the need for some kind of healthcare product, some kind of clothing to protect them from the weather or some type of food to feed their hunger, never to save for tomorrow. It is illogical. The same thing is true for black people and this electoral process as long as we present it the way we present it. It doesn't seem like it's going to address the police that are killing us because it's not stopped that since we've been here. It doesn't seem like it's going to address the fact that black people are dying in the healthcare system at higher rates than everybody else. It doesn't seem like it's going to address the fact that black people with college education still earn less than white people with felony conviction. It doesn't seem like it's going to address the raising the racist housing practices that the bankies are using against us. So until we make black people believe that voting for somebody or something will address any of these issues, it is wrong to blame black people for not wanting to participate. But for those who are successful enough to live in a life where they see better. And I don't think that's the majority of black people at all. So that system might be a little off, if you ask me, as it pertains to her ruling about where we are with the vote. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, uh, Francesca? Yeah, I, I, just picking up on that, I, I want to talk about some of the generational differences you're seeing, Mondale. Junius and I go back and forth quite a bit personally on what it's like to be a baby boomer and then what it's like to be in every generation after that. And what access to resources, what policy decisions have you benefited from? And I'm just wondering, what are you seeing younger Black men saying? What are you seeing within the community when we're talking about generational differences? Are you seeing a son and his father saying something different? For the most part, I mean, like, um, that's the thing about, I love when people people are so quick to say, oh, Black people aren't a monolith. We're not a monolith, but we vote monolithic. Like our voting is monolithic. I don't, I don't, people, people can say whatever they want to. It might not be politically correct to say that, but it's a fact. Black people vote the same way. Not like anybody else. Nobody votes more like each other, like black men and black women. 
There's no other demographic in this country where 70 percent of somebody or 80 percent or 90 percent are voting the same way, except for us. So we vote monolithic. So I, I will say I don't especially when we're talking about demographics of brothers who don't normally participate in electoral politics. I'm not getting a difference in opinion as it pertains to how they feel. I, I, I talk to brothers who have retired out of gangs. These brothers are 60, 70 years old and they have the same complaints as these 22 and 23 year olds. Um, about the system. They suffered the same system. They had Rodney King. These kids know Tra- Tamir Rice, right? They know Trayvon. These guys remember uh, what was going on with the Panthers back then. So I, I don't, I don't, I think if we're being honest about what's going on, the plight of the black men in America has not changed. We can text about it now, but we can't afford to be free from it. Black men aren't free from what, what it has always been. We live in a society where people talk about patriarchy as if black men benefit from white patriarchy. There's a certain level of oppression that some black men afflict over their interpersonal relationship with black women. That is a fact that we can't dis- that we can't discount and is illogical to do so. But black men don't, there's no benefit to be a black man in America that anybody would change <laughs> to be a part of because it's, it, it's almost a death sentence. And we have to be honest about that when we're considering what our voting engagement tactics are. How are you gonna tell this person that this vote might help them live longer, prevent the system from killing them? And I don't think we do a good job of that in the way we play politics. We don't have any evidence to support it. We don't have any evidence to support it. And I think one of the things that I've seen in my experience is as consultants or as democratic consultants, we are not treating black men and women as intelligent people and as full people. Yeah. And I think we see that with the mailers that you were referencing. We see it with what happens after Labor Day we see it with the messaging being very thin and not layered the same way that we're messaging white suburban women. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the fact that we're even still targeting white voters at the expense of black voters is absolutely disgusting to me. I don't get it. I um, I also think, though, you know, like you have those black part of it is the, the black people who are preachers of the party have done such a disservice to us because they wanted access. This idea that I can get to the White House, I get invited to the White House Easter egg hunt this year. It's more important. That's such a deep cut. <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's so important to them to be at the CBC. I've never been to the, the Easter egg hunt. I just want to put that on the table. They sent me an invite. I was like, y'all, I said, yo, y'all listen. And you know, and you know I didn't get invited. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So I think people care about that access more than telling the truth about what's like what's really going on in our community. And part of it is they don't they don't want to say it to their white friends that they don't really know how to turn out these because they built into this idea of whiteness a long time ago and it's caused them a disconnect with their own community. So I, I feel like but white people are more comfortable dealing with those who are gonna go along with it than people like me who are gonna scream at them all the time. Which is why I I'm I'm proud to say I've never taken a penny from the Democratic Party or any auxiliaries uh for the work that I do, and I've been doing this work this long. And I'm not owned and they don't own my data and they're not my donors, so they can't control it, even when they try. And I told them they call it the end of the election cycle. Tom Perez called me in 2020. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And I told them, stop thinking me on my phone. Think me in public. They'll never say it. They'll never say it in public. But I, I created the um, I that and I don't and I'm not naive. I know there's a role for black people inside the Democratic Party. We I created um their their program for trans people, black trans people and also brothers with felony convictions to get hired by the DNC in 2020. I wrote that program for seven states and it employed a hundred plus 
uh, trans and returning citizens uh, throughout the election cycle. So that's a good thing for them. But, but the work was transactional. Even the people were telling me like, oh, yeah, they're giving us money, but they're not. We have no direction. So they, the people were getting paychecks, but they weren't really managing. They just wanted to say we have this many black trans people on payroll. So it's not like here's a guided program to go engage a community. So, I mean, so I told my people just keep getting that bag and we can just talk about it later. But I think um, we're so disconnected, or so afraid to sit at our own table because we want to be so close to them. And I, I'm not a, I'm not a, a segregationist or integrationist. I like equity and I don't see it coming right now from the way that they, they're dispersing power. This season, Mondale, we've been talking about organizing. And one question that we've asked everybody who's been a guest is, how did you become an organizer? When did you realize you were an organizer? And I'd love to just get some of your thoughts there. And the reason that we're asking this question is because it doesn't feel tangible. So the same way it feels difficult to get involved in the political process, it can really feel like you have to know somebody, you have to be somebody in order to start a movement. And clearly that's something you've been able to do so how did you realize you were an organizer, Mondale? Yeah, I, I think I'm looking at y'all faces and I mean, I don't know. I don't know any way to say it other than Barack Obama became an organizer because he had a white experience. I was born this way. Right. Like I grew up in in poverty. I'm one of 13 kids, there were six before me and six after. My dad has a third grade education. My mom has a sixth grade education. My dad got a felony conviction when he was 15 for hitting he hit the son of the white man who owned the farm where his family worked. He was just, my dad is the son of a sharecropper. My grandfather was a sharecropper. The kid decided that he was going to smack my grandmother and knock her off the porch. My dad responded and got a felony conviction from that. That felony conviction was a part of my life, my entire life. We were, my dad was bouncing around for menial, minimal jobs my entire life. And we moved a lot. And I couldn't understand why we were so poor. It, sometimes it caused me to resent my dad a whole lot when I was a young young man. And it wasn't until I was about 14 or 15 and my mom started telling us the stories about her being sprayed with the fire hose that I really felt like this experiment called America is horrible. And, and, I, and I wanted to do something that could make it better for, you know, Black people. And so nobody other than me had to hear their mom laugh about being sprayed with a fire hose for being downtown and being Black. And that's your only crime. And so, I, I mean, at 14, I started to think about what it means to be a race man. And, and even in my childish mind at that time, I didn't know. I just read it in W. Bo's book, The Soul of Black Folks. And I knew I was going to be a race man. And that's what I, I mean. So I would say realizing my dad's felony and my mom's bruises from the water holes at a young age made me an organizer. And being Black in America right now and witnessing what happens in 2022 and so many people are bragging about not being woke to what the, to all of the problems that this country has, as if it's a badge of honor, forces me to continue to organize. I'm just letting that sit for a moment. We've had every individual who's come on our show and has answered that question has come to it from a place of such a personal experience. And there has never been an answer that started with a degree. Right. It never was an answer that started with a job that somebody had. It was a personal experience. And 
I think, Mr. Williams, one of the things that you brought to this and that you have tried to tell all of us and to preach to all of us is that we all have the knowledge, the power, the background to be organizers. We just have to step into it. And so thank you, Mondale, for, and thank you, Mr. Williams, for showing Black men, for showing people like my husband, for even showing people like my father who needs to be reminded that he can step into that power, that we can be an organizer at any moment, and that we have something to say. Just so everybody knows, this is the end of our second season. I've enjoyed working with you, Francesca. It seems like we've been together all the time. We are married at the hip, not the way you might otherwise think. People out there, those of you who are those kinds of minds, the young lady just had another child with a wonderful husband, but we are married professionally here. And we are going to hopefully continue this into another season. What is it going to be about? Well, we want some input from you out there. You know what the overall topic is. Everything's political. And since everything is political, tell us what you want us to talk about in season three, which will start in September of 2022. And on that note, I want to also thank our audience for being loyal, faithful listeners, those of you who are out there who've heard all eight sessions now. And this goodbye could go on and on and on and on. But I just want to ask you to continue to be with us and to continue to support us as you have thus far. Thank you. See you next semester. This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political Podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.